Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. He comes to us from the UK. His name is Henry Hemming, and he published a book back in 2017. The title of the book is Agent M, The Lives and Spies of MI5's Maxwell Knight. And this is a topic I was interested in. I did a lot of studying about Knight and some of his acquaintances, people that he knew, Tom Dryberg and Dennis Wheatley, who I've read some of his stuff and really followed Wheatley closely. He was a friend of Maxwell Knight. So this really, uh, this topic and author was something that came to mind. But Henry Hemming has written for The Economist, FT Magazine, Washington Post, and has had been featured in The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Christian Science Monitor. This is not his first book. He's also written In Search of the English Eccentric in 2009, Misadventure in the Middle East, Travels as a Tramp Artist and Spy, 2010, the ingenious Mr. Pike, Inventor, Fugitive Spy, 2015. And his most recent book is published under two titles here in the States. It would be Our Man in New York, The British Plot to Bring America into the Second World War. And in the UK, it's Agents of Influence, a British campaign, Canadian spy, and the secret plot to bring America into World War II. And that was the 2019-2020. So that's the most recent one. But again, we're going to talk about this book today. Uh, title of it again is Agent M, The Lives and Spies of MI5's Maxwell Knights. So Henry Hemming, thank you for, for joining us. How are you? I'm doing well. And thank good. you. Really, really good to be on the show. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard your name and some of your other books, mm. can you talk about your background and what led you mm. to write Agent M? Yeah, sure. I've um, so this is the um, it's the second of uh, of three books I've written on on espionage and intelligence. And um and you could say I got into it by accident. I was I was doing books on different themes. I did a, a travel book. I did uh, two books about English society. And then I was about to, to pitch to my publisher a new book, a biography of a man called Jeffrey Pike, who was, uh, I, I thought I was going to be writing a book about an eccentric British inventor, an extraordinary man, someone who even invented the uh, the original American and Canadian special forces back in the Second World War. And just before I sent in this pitch to the uh, to the publisher, there was a, a press release which said that MI5, the British Security Intelligence Service, was um, releasing files to show that the same man, Jeffrey Pike, might have been a Soviet agent during the Second World War. And so suddenly I had to rework the pitch. But also, crucially, I got into the National Archives in Britain. I began to research more about whether or not he was a Soviet agent, but also that world. And, and I began to, to understand that it's, uh, first of all, it's a fascinating world, the world of um, intelligence and um, counterintelligence during the Second World War. But also just from a historical point of view, it's a subject which is constantly evolving because more and more material is being released. And so our understanding of exactly what was going on at that time in the 30s and 40s is mutating. And, um, and so there's something exciting about that. And the other thing that was exciting was beginning to realize that a lot of these agent reports, which have now been released and now in the public domain, they, although the names have been anonymized, it was possible by jigsaw identification if you are really really diligent and you know obsessed as, as i later became it was possible to work out the real identities of some of these undercover mi5 agents who were reporting to the security service and so 
the, the activities of MI5 played a small part in this biography of Jeffrey Pike. It became a, a book called The Ingenious Mr. Pike, which, uh, which you mentioned, which became briefly a, a New York Times bestseller in the States. And, uh, and the book after that is, is this one. Is, uh, and it came out really as a result of getting, beginning to get a sense of what MI5 was up to during the 30s and 40s. And again and again, there was this one figure who, um, who just stood out as being an extraordinary man, an enigma, and um, an extremely talented spy master at the same time. And that was Maxwell Knight. So that was how I first became aware of him, how I first was drawn into his world. And it really was only possible to write this book for, for the first time when I began to research it. So even as little as five or 10 years previously, the material simply wasn't there. And you just had to go on speculation, on memoirs that had been written by, by people who had heard of him and so on. Um, but for the first time, there was enough information out there that you could put together a really detailed, interesting account of, uh, of exactly what he was up to. But I guess it's not a, it's not a technical book. I mean, the thing that, that made me convinced that, that Agent M could work as a, as a book is understanding him as a character and this enormous conflict within his, his personal life between essentially the people he was friends with and his country. And this is this, this conflict which, which escalates until there is this crisis, if you like, during the early days of the Second World War. And that's when, I mean, to put it simply, he has to decide who he is. He has to decide what matters the most to him. And the moment I sensed that that was part of the story, I was, I was hooked. I wanted to uh, to write it, and he's such a an interesting character too, just by himself. I mean, mm. he you kind of portray him right at the beginning. Beginning is kind of a aimless, jazz loving, night living guy who was yeah. very young. Um, can you talk about kind of his early life and how his character development began, yeah. and how he got into, involved in intelligence? Yeah, I mean, there's um there's a moment where we kind of we first encounter him in the book, where um yeah he's at a sort of all time low he's uh he's a part time teacher he's uh he's teaching games he wants to teach english but they don't think he's good enough to do that he's uh he's been kicked out by his uh, his his family his family regard him as a black sheep they see him as a as a misfit he's no longer getting a family allowance he's got a love of jazz and uh, he's got a love of of also animals he's um although he's living in this tiny london flat he collects animals and and looks after them and this is his rare and unusual gift. He has this extraordinary ability to, if you like, read animals, to, to look after them, to keep them alive, to sense what they want when they need it. And he's just, yeah, he's a natural when it comes to, to animals. So that's his kind of his, his hobby. But as a young man, it became almost an obsession and it was uh, threatening to take over. And so there he is. He's, um, he's bumbling around. He's got no prospects. He wants to be a novelist and... Uh, but again, his books, no one wants to, to buy it. And then he has a chance encounter. He has a chance encounter with someone who says, would you like to do some, some undercover work, something for your country? And, uh, and he gets taken on by, not by MI5 or MI6 or, or the police, but by a private intelligence agency. And at that time, there were, there were a handful of these quite right-wing private organizations they were funded by wealthy industrialists who were worried about industrial action. And I think beyond that, they were worried about a, 
left-wing communist uh, revolution, some kind of insurrection. Obviously, this is not too far off. We're in the early 1920s. The, uh, the memory of 1917 in Russia is not at all distant. And there are a lot of people in Britain who perfectly sensibly felt there was a chance something like that could happen in Britain. And so these people were putting money into intelligence agencies who were trying to find out more about where this unrest was coming from, who the, the provocateurs might be, and so on. So that that's how the, he, he gets to interrupt, but that was called yeah, the yeah. McGill organization, right? It was kind of like exactly. uh, a McGill gotcha. Just yeah, for yeah. Sorry, please continue. And, and that was uh, run by a guy called Sir George McGill. And so that's how he gets into it. And um, it turns out he's really good. He is good at recruiting people, earning their trust, and gathering their intelligence and reporting on this back to his controller. And, and these are kind of the basic components of being a good intelligence field officer. And it turns out he has them. And I mean, there's a really obvious parallel between his ability to, to just instinctively read animals and his ability to instinctively read undercover agents to, to earn people's trust and to, to get a sense of how to keep them happy and, and, and so on. And so, yeah, at last he's found his, his calling. And from there, it begins to, um, he does really well. He gets taken on by, by other intelligence agencies. He gets taken on by MI6. He begins to report to the police special branch. And then in 1931, he is uh, not only taken on by MI5, but he's given his own department in MI5, which on the face of it is, is extraordinary. He's, uh, he's not someone who's kind of carefully worked his way up through the ranks of MI5. He's been taken on. And, um, and part of the reason he was taken on and given this prestigious role is that he already had this fantastic network in place. So he had a number of agents who were reporting to him by 1931, and they were embedded inside the, uh, well, the Communist Party of Great Britain. They had good intelligence on left-wing organizations. And that is what, at that time, that's what MI5 wanted. So Max and I had this ready-made organization and uh, that's where his career begins. Right. So he's, he was kind of a just a free living guy who was financed by MacGill. And mm -hmm. he actually became kind of part of the what was the British fascisti, I think it was you called it. Yeah, in the book, exactly. Which was kind of it wasn't as, uh, you know, a negative thing back then to, to be a fascist as it is kind of now, I would say. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. And every time I say it, every time I write that in the book, it sounds... It just doesn't sort of read right. You know, the moment any of us hear the word fascist, even if it's got the letter I on the end, fascisti, we immediately have a pretty um, clear um, and just non-moving definition of what that could mean. But back in the 1920s, to be a British fascisti was not the same as what it meant to be a British fascist in the 1930s. So it was, yeah, a, a slightly, it was a more moderate organization. It wasn't right. as uh, overtly anti-Semitic. It wasn't as obsessed with uniform and discipline and authoritarianism. But let's not kid ourselves. It was still right wing. It still had very traditional views on how things could be. It was, there's one quote um, that we put in the book. They describe it as uh, conservatism with knobs on. You know, it's just kind of, 
exaggerated version of, of something we're all fairly familiar with. But that so, was that's how he started his infiltration was he was infiltrating yeah. too. So his network starts there, William Joyce, some of these other characters. I'm yeah, so he's told he's his job is to go and infiltrate this right wing group, the British Fascisti. But there's no doubt he um I wouldn't say he goes native, but he certainly he forms friendships within that group which are which are real. He he gets on well with some of these key individuals and they form friendships with this guy William Joyce who becomes a, a huge part of his life he's the man that, that Knight is particularly interested in and William Joyce actually pretty much steals Maxwell Knight's first girlfriend so they've got this um there's also a kind of a personal dynamic there and I mean to put it really simply to someone who doesn't know anything about William Joyce William Joyce represents many of the things that Maxwell Knight wishes he had and vice versa so Maxwell Knight, he, I suppose what William Joyce has that Knight does not, he is a stronger character. He is more impulsive. He is someone, he's also, he's more successful with, with women than Maxwell Knight is. And, um, and at the same time, Joyce admires things about Maxwell Knight, his ability to, uh, to write, his ability to read agents and so on. So they've got this fascinating sort of almost love-hate relationship where they both envy and admire things in each other. And they become friends. And uh, this is a friendship that will later come to uh, to haunt Maxwell Knight. Right. So Joyce goes on. But I think he's an important figure because it's somebody he keeps interrelating with as the kind of fascist movement grows. Mm. And so Knight kind of comes out and becomes established, right, in 31. Mm. Can you explain how he kind of created his... Kind of stable of assets and agents and how he how what did he, why did he even decide that he would go by agent him yeah he um he i mean yeah he set up an organization within mi5 or an, an agency within mi5 called m section and in answer to your question why did he go for that he um i think there's a bit of vanity i think there was uh, a little bit also of he'd read a lot of spy fiction this is, uh, I mean, this is a man who's a brilliant spy master, but someone who is not at all immune to the uh, the romance of espionage. And uh, there's a lovely line from someone who was uh, who was run by Maxwell Knight, who um, who noticed that Maxwell Knight loved to meet this particular agent in uh, either in the in the back row of theatres or in the um, in hotel lobbies in kind of remote suburban, quite grubby hotels. And he once asked Maxwell Knight, you know, why do we keep meeting these places? There are so many other places we could meet. And um, and he said, well, that's <laughs> that's what they do in, in spy novels. And so, yeah, there was a part of him that enjoyed just slightly playing this role. And you don't need to read much spy fiction to know that a lot of fictional spy masters will go by a letter. It could be M, it could be R, it could be, there's a real spy master, the head of MI6 who went by the letter C. But um, plenty of fictional ones that went by other letters of the alphabet. So he decided he'd become this figure M, and all his uh, agents would be uh, designated as M1, M2, M3, or MA, MB, MC. And, uh, and it was a part of his his legend, part of his uh, the mystique he wanted to create. And so his brief in 1931 was pretty simple: keep your existing organization going but also take on more agents and uh, they want to find out much more about what's going on inside the communist party of britain so 
his uh, one of his big innovations is, and it sounds so obvious to us today, but one of his big innovations was to start trying to recruit female secretaries. And uh, knowing that we're still in a world where being a good typist is an essential function, and we're also still in a world where the heads of, of even left-wing political groups would have a devoted secretary who'd be there in the room or in the room next door, hearing a lot of what's going on, seeing who's coming in, who's coming out. And, um, and at the time, in MI5, the idea of taking on a woman as an MI5 agent was strange, was weird. A lot of MI5 officers were conservative and they, they had a, you know, basically fairly misogynistic take on uh, what a woman was capable of and felt it was just a mistake to, um, to take on any women full stop. And Maxwell Knight was, was different. He thought um, that women, I can't remember his exact quote, but he thought women often made better undercover agents than men. And I think his main thinking here was that they had less of a need, as he put it, to, to show off and to try and impress other people with what they were doing. So they were more trustworthy. And so he began to recruit a number of, of female agents. And, um, and the one that I was really taken by when I was researching all this was the amazing um, Olga. Olga, who, uh, who, who had grown up in Birmingham, and, uh, and she moved to London to become an undercover agent for MI5, and uh, and she did amazingly. I don't. I want to always leave, keep some of my powder dry for the book, but um, she got about as far into the Communist Party as it was possible to have got. Right, as a secretary, so she observed, and he was telling her, "Just be patient, be yep. patient," and it ended up working out. Right, it ended up working out. At the same time, it took an enormous toll. Um, she had a, a breakdown, and um, and it's kind of, it's it's sort of impressive, but also maybe questionable in terms of the ethics of it, that after this breakdown, he talked to her and she said she wanted to go back into the field and he agreed. And you could say that perhaps that was a mistake. But anyway, she did. And, um, and this led to one of the great espionage triumphs in the 1930s for, for MI5, where they uncovered a, a Soviet ring within London that was uh, capturing photographing and exporting uh, extremely valuable military secrets. And, um, and Maxwell Knight had an agent who was, uh, who was on the inside of this operation, who was actually in the room as some of the photographs were, uh, were being taken. Yeah, so, I mean, they had success. I mean, so they were also curious or concerned about communism, but also about Mosley and yeah. the new reformed fascist, the British Union of fascists too, right? And they're influence mm. as Hitler and Mussolini kind of rose. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and this is um and this is very much in lockstep with what's going on politically that in general, this is now established truth by for most historians, the British took too long to understand the threat of fascism across Europe. And um and for too long they saw it as as something essentially benign and not to, to worry about. And Maxwell Knight was guilty of this as well. And uh he was obsessed with, uh, as MI5 was, he was obsessed with getting inside the communist movement. He had friends inside the fascist movement. He didn't see them as a threat. So it was only really late in the day, so we're talking kind of 36, 37, 1936, 1937, that he begins to really apply himself to getting agents into the British fascist underground. And, um, and one of the people who he briefly takes on is this character, William Joyce, 
but he recruits a number of others. And what he even does, which um, which I find amazing, is he he got some of the agency had inside communist parties. He got them out and said, "Okay, change of plan. You now need to go and reinvent yourself as a, as a fascist." Which, um, I mean, for any agent, that is extraordinary. That kind of shift, and uh, and I think this is one of the things that that I was struck by when researching Agent M, is just the uh, the skill required as an agent to do that. And it's one which is not necessarily celebrated. A lot of these people, their identities remained a secret. They took their secrets to the grave. And um, and at the same time, they were extraordinarily talented in, uh, in being able to do what they did. So yeah, he, <laughs> he eventually gets agents inside the uh, British fascist movement. And that's one of the interesting things about the book is these interesting agents that he had, how the peculiar characters and yeah. how they did it. And a lot of you said that a lot of did it just because it was for their moral outlook. They believed they were doing the right thing. They weren't very well paid, right? Yeah. No, they, they were, I think it's fair to say they were terribly paid. And uh, and that was partly because MI5 was not um, rolling in cash. Also because Maxwell Knight did not want, he wanted people who were motivated by um, a sense of service, by patriotism. And also by a fear of, of communism and a fear of, uh, of the Soviet Union, he was wary of anyone who was getting paid too much because he, he thought they were just uh, doing it for the wrong reasons. And, um, and yeah, a lot of these people, they, they gave a lot. And it was, um, there was something quite moving about finding out about what happened to them after they finished their, their undercover careers. And a lot of them suffered later on in life. A lot of them... Um, became um, alcoholics or became obese or um, suffered from stress-related uh, diseases or conditions. And um, yeah, I mean, obviously correlation, not causation perhaps, but there's there's a clear trend in terms of what happened to a lot of these men and women. Right. So they went through a lot of stress. I mean, it yeah. was interesting. And like he was activating all, I think it was Eric Roberts or something of like, he mm. got activated. He's a bank teller by day. Uh, spy by night he said he had to change into his fascist outfit and bathrooms and stuff like really yeah. interesting <laughs> uh vignettes and stories about these guys and it turns out a lot of their investigations netted important information because the communists and the fascists were a real threat and were internationally connected right absolutely they were and uh and it provided um huge amount of information i think what it also did was um allowed the British government at that time to get a sense of just, you know, a, a clearer sense of how bad the threat was. In some cases, there's as much value in proving that there is a limited threat. So the threat from, let's say, Soviet um, infiltration at that time in the kind of early 30s was was not huge. And that was, there's a value in, in finding that out. But um, it really, a lot of this intelligence really came into its own in the early days of the Second World War when um, the British government was obviously preparing for a, a German invasion, was trying to work out what to do. And Maxwell Knight was, um, was pretty decisive in terms of uh, arguing to Churchill that, uh, that the fascists should be locked up, that they did pose a threat. And this, to me, this is, um, this is a huge moment because a lot of these people that he's saying need to be locked up without trial were, were former friends of his, were people he knew inside out, were people whose wives and children he knew. And um, of him to say that, I think, took, uh, took moral courage. And, uh, and it played, 
I mean, I think beyond that, this is not an intentional effect, but something about that, this, this moment of internment, I think that changed for a lot of people in Britain, their understanding of what was going on. In other words, it made a lot of people in Britain realize this is serious. This is, uh, yeah, we, we really are at war. This is not a phony war. And, um, and I think it changed a lot of attitudes. And so, I mean, there was really that moment, like, are we going to intern this or do this or not? Do you think mm. that that was the right de decision looking back? Or what's the kind of impression about uh, this, you know, pretty unique approach to the problem? Yeah, it's one of these things where if you look back on it, knowing everything we know, it was the wrong decision. If you look back at the decision, knowing everything that they knew, it was the right decision. So based on the information they had, I think it was the right decision. But based on what we now know of the actual threat, it, it was it was not. It wasn't. And, and there were other kind of things that he was involved in so many there. There's spying counters by it really was. Yeah this kind of espionage work. Can you define as you define espionage in the book? Can you let the listener know what espionage means? And some of the like uh, Soviet infiltrators were really fascinating. Some of those stories. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, espionage is uh, simply trying to gather intelligence, but I suppose what Maxwell Knight was trying to do was counterintelligence, counter espionage, which is trying to stop other people gathering intelligence. And that's what his agents were really um, dedicated to. And, um, and I shouldn't get too starry-eyed here. There was still, he was up against an extremely sophisticated um, Soviet espionage operation. And as we all know, Cambridge Five and so on, there were a large number of Soviet agents who, who went undetected for a long time. And uh, Maxwell Knight's operation was, you know, in theory, it was meant to stop all of that. And it was not up to that task. It gathered a huge amount of intelligence. It stopped a certain amount of espionage but by no means was it um, supremely triumphant. And um, I mean, he even, I, for some reason, I love the story of, uh, of him encountering Anthony Blunt. So Anthony Blunt was a Soviet agent. He was part of the Cambridge Five. And he'd been taken on by MI5. He was inside MI5. And he decided he wanted to get inside Maxwell Knight's office. And, uh, and so he, he tried to join. But Maxwell Knight, and it's just some evidence of this instinct he had, um, was just convinced that there was something up with Anthony Blunt. He was convinced. He couldn't put his finger on it, but he knew there was something. And he actually, he began to think that Anthony Blunt might be a, a Nazi agent. He didn't know, he had no idea which side he was on, but he just, he could tell he was a man who, was, who had a, more secrets than, than most. And, um, and so he refused to let Blunt into his uh, office. But one of the people who did get into uh, Maxwell Knight's office later on was um, John le Carre, who, uh, who spent four years working under Maxwell Knight and was really was, was taken by him and even illustrated some of Maxwell Knight's uh, animal books. I should have mentioned Maxwell Knight then reinvents himself after the Second World War as, uh, as this nature-loving TV personality, this kind of David Attenborough figure. And he's, um, he's on the radio, he's on TV, he's telling children and, and people about how to look after pets, or how to spot birds and the undergrowth and, and so on. And he becomes this sort of lovable figure that um, millions of, of British people are familiar with. And not a single one of them knows. Well, What's almost none of them know. <laughs> about what he's doing for the last two decades, right? Yeah. yeah. And what was amazing is he's doing the two things, they overlap. So he's still a serving senior MI5 officer 
while also popping out of the office to do broadcasts about um pet otters all <laughs> right <laughs> and he had baboons in his apartment you were talking about just the mix of i mean really I some know. pretty uh creatures who probably should be in zoos i don't know how he got away with that i, I know i don't think you wouldn't be able to get away with it now yeah. he's uh but yeah he had all sorts he had baboons he had a, a small bear at one point and um and, he, and also there's a small kind of i mentioned the word vanity before there's definitely there's a little bit of exhibitionism in that he loved to be able to say i've got the most extraordinary menagerie i've got a baboon and a bear and a parrot as um as opposed to just being obsessed with one animal he liked to to put on a show and you know as i also say in the book it's um a strange thing for an exhibitionist to choose to become a spy master yeah um, he's a very complex person i mean absolutely and 27 books i mean his output is really incredible to think that he was doing all this at the same time uh, mm. while writing books and and talking about books there's um amazing to see how many of his uh, reporting agents would go on to write their own books usually novels and uh and this is a real theme he'd look for people who are not only good at keeping their cool good at telling lies and, and keeping up a cover but also people who who could write who could write decent reports who understood what was salient information and what was not and that was a crucial part of what it took to uh, to be an undercover agent and uh, so yeah there's um they put out an amazing variety of books the uh, the different people working for m section including john le Carre. There you go, John McCurry, David Cornwell's his, uh, real name, and mm -hmm. Tinker, Ta Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy, which they just kind of remade, has a yeah. character based upon Knight, right? Yeah, well, no, that's um, a, a Perfect one? Spy. Perfect Spy, sorry. Perfect Spy has got um, Jack Brotherhood, gotcha. and Jack Brotherhood is basically Maxwell Knight, I mean, in, in every sure. regard. And uh, and that was really helpful when researching the book, being able to, uh, to get into that. And... Um, and yeah, I mean, and he's, so he's is yeah, such a good yeah. The Carre is like one of the greats, right? I mean, one of the yeah. great post-war spy writers. Yeah, and um, and there was an amazing moment just um, in terms of just how good Le Carre is. He wrote a piece shortly before he died, and he referred to Maxwell Knight, and he actually referred also to my book on him briefly. But he then um, I can't remember exact, the exact wording, but he then summed up Maxwell Knight in a sentence. And I remember thinking, I've I've written a book, 350 pages long, but there's no sentence which encapsulates the man as well as that one line. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm in awe of the man. He's yeah. uh, so he, he he understood Maxwell Knights particularly well. And he had friends too. I mean, he was friends with Dennis Wheatley, somebody I've researched. So somebody who's a very influential writer with incredible output too. I mean, their relationship yeah. is very curious because that's kind of they're both interested in spy writing like i think it was salas it was wheatley's salas um series who's a spy that influenced mm. ian fleming so you mm. can trace connection or between maxwell knight to wheatley to fleming it's pretty fascinating absolutely and, and maxwell knight shared um an interest in in the occult there's no doubt about that i mean there's we i don't know enough about it it's not a big part of the book because i just um i don't have kind of you know, chapter and verse, but he was, um, he and Wheatley were both intrigued by the occult. So both, um, yeah, fascinated by Alistair Crowley. I fascinated is the wrong word. They were, um, they wanted to know more about him, I think is a better way of putting it. Yeah, I would agree with that. I don't, I think they were interested in drawing information from him, 
Wheatley, definitely, for sure. There's a signed mm -hmm. copy. I have it in Children of the Beast. Signed mm -hmm. copy of Alistair Crowley's Magic and Theory and Practice. Mm -hmm. Specifically signed to Dennis Wheatley. So he was yeah. an influence on Wheatley. Uh, at least as a character, as a bad, you know, bad character. Um, but hmm. there's stories about that. I mentioned Joan Mellon, Miller. You kind of he Joan Miller was somebody relate like uh, associate to Knight, but you didn't really find her very credible, right? I didn't. Um, and the sad thing is that it's it's one of these things where she wrote her memoir, pretty certain that all the official papers would never come out, and um, and I think what sort of I mean, A, you can see very clearly just from all the, the official reports that have come out that she um, she took the credit for a lot of stuff that was done by other people. She wrote the memoir when she needed money. And um, and she also, yeah, she, she essentially because she was rejected by Maxwell Knight, she put out the line that anyone who rejects me essentially has to be gay. And, uh, and so she she promoted the line that Maxwell Knight was secretly gay. And um, and it's stuck because there were there's no one really to kind of contradict that, and and yeah, Maxwell Knight's sexuality is is in itself an interesting subject. I think based on everything we know, because he had three marriages during his life, he had a number of uh, what have been described as affairs, um, all with women, and I think he was he was probably heterosexual, and I think he had problems performing, for want of a better word. And uh, it said that none of his marriages were consummated, which, uh, but you know, who are we to know? It's one of these things we'll never actually kind of know. Things. But he's he's always with women, so you always like. I mean, he's having yeah. relationships with women. They may not be, like you exactly. said, consummated. It was interesting in your book too because he listed out all of his agents M one, M two, not mm. known to the public, but you were able to decipher and kind of uncover some of those names, right? Yeah, ex exactly. And that was, um, I found that thrilling as, as anyone would. It was just uh, detective work and um, going to all sorts of different archives, trying to uh, fill in the gaps that have been left in the official record. And um, and it's, it's yeah, you, you could say that some of these people's identities need to remain a secret forever, but I think it's actually more important to celebrate what they did and uh, all of the people who I was able to identify have been long dead. And uh, and it's only when you know who an agent is that you understand where they've come from and also what happens to them afterwards. And so suddenly it becomes this much richer portrait of, uh, of the lives of all these different men and women who uh, sacrificed so much. I mean, everyone from the... Um, there's a woman who used to do cookery demonstrations outside supermarkets where she was selling a certain type of flour. So it's great kind of performer... Who um who became one of Maxwell Knight's undercover agents, and um and apparently within her family, she towards the end of her life started saying, by the way, you know, I, I used to work for MI5, and everyone just said, um, you <laughs> you've lost the plot, you've gone mad, and uh, and there's nothing tragic about this, you know. Only much much later were you able were they able to find out like, oh, actually, this is um she really was, she was telling the truth. And, uh, and there were several instances where I was able to confirm to the children or the grandchildren their wow. suspicions or their, their feelings that perhaps granny or, or mum or dad might have been an MI5 agent. As they would confirm that, yes, they were. And this is what they did. Wow, that's amazing. And that was, and, yeah, yeah, thrilling. 
They couldn't even tell their own kids. I think the Official Secrecies Act is really intense, right, over there? I mean, I, I don't know yeah. what they're bound by, but I remember Fleming talking about, like, I can't talk about anything I did in World War II. Yeah. So a lot of these people are really super secret. Just, and that was a theme in your book. That was one of the central mm. themes of the book is can you keep your mouth shut, right? Mm, absolutely. And uh, I think once you get into the habit of it, it's uh, it's it's pretty easy to to keep it going to an extent. I shouldn't say pretty easy, but it's it's possible to keep it going. I mean, what's interesting is that Maxwell Knight would always, I wouldn't say encourage, but he'd always allow agents to uh, to tell their other half, so their husband or their wife. And, um, and that certainly made it easier to keep that secret. I think the pressure of keeping it, even from the person you're sharing a bed with, would be too much. And so he understood that. And, and that's why he was able to keep some of his agents going for, 20 years which uh which is almost unheard of in the world of intelligence it really is incredible. i think that he had the sensibility i think it comes through in your book that he was much more empathetic towards his agents and understood them and tried to help them through i think that that was mm. maybe mm. set him aside from somebody else who maybe more i think the other guy you talked about was kerr or kell or something maybe a little less yeah 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 you know. yeah no, like, some, I, some yeah. of the other guys were they like to keep their distance more and uh and and slightly sort of looked down upon and, and sneered at undercover agents saw them as kind of expendable and uh maxwell knight was different yeah really fascinating book loved reading the book great interview great oh, discussion you. where's the best place for people to get agent m you know what um all good bookshops i i believe it's uh i mean nowhere in particular i can think of i mean i think yeah i'm sure amazon is probably the easiest place for a lot of people but um yeah, it's Whatever. it's in most uh, most well-known bookshops. And your website is your full name, henryhemming.com, correct? Exactly. And I'll yeah. put that in the show notes. So it's his full name, H-E-N-R-Y-H-E-M-M-I-N-G.com. And again, the title of the book is Agentum, The Lives and Spies of MI5's Maxwell Knight, and published in 2017. So Henry, thank you so much for the discussion. Really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Really good to talk. All right, great. Take care. Stay there. Stay there. Thanks. <laughs>